Hi everyone, thanks for joining us again on Book Insights. I'm Tom Butler-Burden. If this is the first time that you've tuned in, what we do is pretty simple. In-depth looks at the best non-fiction books. So one week you'll get the lowdown on a recent bestseller, and the next you'll learn about an old classic and why it still matters. I give a brief intro and then it's straight into the book inside itself, which is divided into three parts and runs 20 to 30 minutes. The insights themselves have been written by subject experts and top writers, and the words are spoken by professional voice actors. So today's book inside. We're looking at Malcolm Gladwell's 2013 bestseller, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits and the Art of Battling Giants. Before we start, let's put it in some context. Gladwell has sold millions of books by harvesting findings from the academic world that are yet to become common knowledge. He's also brilliant at joining the dots on apparently unconnected things and weaving them into a compelling story. The other thing he specialises in is the counterintuitive and overturning assumptions. One assumption we routinely make is that strength or money or power equals success. But Gladwell reckons that the greatest successes come about from people feeling they have nothing and wanting something badly. To be top dog, in other words, it can make sense to be the underdog. That goes against conventional power narratives, of course, but I love the fact that Gladwell, who's a sort of darling of the New York Times liberal elite, has been willing to really study the topic of success rather than just leave it to motivational speakers. The result is not an inspirational book, and there's plenty of nuance, but for me the bottom line is that circumstances or conditions are never really an excuse for failure. What's more, big institutions or companies or even governments are much more fragile than we think. They can be rendered weak and powerless in the face of small groups of angry and mobilised consumers or citizens. That's a topic explored in another book we're going to cover, The End of Power by Moise's Name. And Gladwell goes further into the topic of success with his other book, Outliers. Again, another one we'll cover later in the year. Anyway, enough of me. Hope you'll enjoy the next 20 minutes, particularly as we've added in a few choice clips of Gladwell himself talking about the ideas in the book. So if you're on a walk or driving or just sitting quietly at home with a drink, we're pleased to have you with us. Do make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the platform you're listening on that way you'll get a weekly notification of the new episode. And if you'd like unlimited 24-7 access to our library of over 100 book insights, just go to memo.com forward slash insights. You'll see the link posted on the podcast description. Lastly, if you enjoy what we do, please add a rating or leave some comments. Okay, let's get into David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. When the Philistines met the Israelite soldiers, they sent their greatest warrior, Goliath. He was at least six foot nine, wore 100 pounds scale armor, and wielded three different weapons. Goliath challenged Israel's King Saul, shouting, Send your best fighter forward for a duel. The outcome will decide the fate of the two people. Nobody moved on Israel's side. Then a small shepherd boy named David stepped forward. He refused King Saul's sword and shield. He met Goliath in the Valley of Elah with nothing but his shepherd's staff, a sling, and five stones. 
This is the origin story of the underdog. A small outsider met an unmatched colossus and miraculously won. And we know what happened. David used his sling to throw a stone at Goliath's forehead. When the giant was down, David swung Goliath's sword and cut his head off. But Malcolm Gladwell wants you to know that you've got the story all wrong. History features amazing tales of many Davids and many Goliaths. They're warriors, shepherds, business titans, junior basketball coaches, British renegades, and more. The story is the same. Little guy takes on the big guy and wins against all odds. But the odds aren't really in the big guy's favor to begin with. Born in the UK and raised in Canada, Gladwell published four books prior to David and Goliath, including Blink, Outliers, and The Tipping Point. All five are New York Times bestsellers. He also writes and hosts the popular podcast Revisionist History and co-created music podcast Broken Record with legendary producer Rick Rubin. He's been a staff writer for The New Yorker since the 1990s. David and Goliath, subtitled Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants, isn't structured in a through line. It's told in anecdotes, historical revisionism, and data. In this book insight, we'll weave through the dozen or so true-life tales by focusing on four themes. First, we'll revisit that battle in the Valley of Ella. We'll discover how Goliath's advantages were really disadvantages. Second, we'll examine the inverted U-curve, which represents the mythological battle in mathematics. Third, we'll ask, would you wish dyslexia upon your children? examining how so-called disadvantages are secretly advantages. Finally, we'll look at remote misses and how what doesn't kill you makes you feel invincible. We'll end with a look at the legacy of Gladwell's most divisive book. According to the Old Testament, David, a lowly shepherd, defeated the giant Goliath armed with nothing but a sling and the grace of the Lord. Everyone believed Goliath would trample the little guy. But the odds were never in Goliath's favor. Goliath was a giant, heavily armed and decked in impressive armor. A boy acted as his shield-bearer. Goliath calls to David, Come to me, that I may give your flesh to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field. When David approaches, Goliath says, Am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? Gladwell picks apart Goliath's defenses and language. A man of Goliath's size was likely inflicted with a growth abnormality called acromegaly. It's caused by a benign tumor in the pituitary gland that enhances human growth. Another symptom of the tumor is compression in the nerves that lead to the eyes, which impairs vision. Gladwell offers up the following as evidence for the condition. Goliath demanded David come to him. When David approached with his shepherd's stick, Goliath asked why he approached with sticks, plural. Also, why did Goliath require a boy to carry his shield? This was uncommon for a man going into a sword fight. Perhaps the boy was guiding the giant? Perhaps Goliath couldn't see David? In ancient times, there were three classes of soldiers, cavalry, infantry, and projectile warriors. Projectile warriors, also called artillery, used bows. Some artillery used slings and were called slingers. A sling can whip a stone with the force of a modern handgun. It can kill or seriously injure someone up to 200 yards away. 
Goliath walked into battle expecting a sword fight. So David, adept at fending off predators from his herd, threw a stone at the giant's only weak spot, his forehead. Goliath was hardly a small target, and David was no underdog. He knew exactly what he was doing. Here's Gladwell discussing history's Davids and Goliaths on the TED Radio Hour on NPR. The difference between established and powerful and large and a nimble, audacious outsider. It's the startup versus Microsoft. It's Tesla versus BMW. One guy's supposed to win and one guy's not. It's not that. Their arsenal is profoundly different. History is replete with Davids and Goliaths. One of the most directly correlated examples in Gladwell's book is the tale of Wyatt Walker, pastor and civil rights activist. Walker was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s chief of staff. King and his team suffered a defeat in getting civil rights media attention in Albany, Georgia. Here, King came up against the chief of police, Laurie Pritchett. Pritchett was an unusually compassionate segregationist who favored non-brutal methods. King left Albany with an unlikely respect for his adversary, but had no press to show for his efforts. So, in 1963, King ordered Walker to go to Birmingham, Alabama. Walker's order was to create a crisis to make Public Safety Commissioner Eugene Bull Connor tip his hand. Connor was armed with a police force and the cruel will of an old-world white supremacist. Meanwhile, Walker had a bad turnout for the protests. White business owners had threatened to fire anybody who took part in the protests. Walker devised Project C for confrontation that relied on two unconventional and controversial weapons, children and the white people's inability to tell black people apart. First, Walker took advantage of the press incorrectly reporting that 1,100 protesters showed up in the streets one day. White journalists couldn't tell the black spectators apart from the black demonstrators. Walker's team then enticed children between the ages of 8 and 18 to appear at a Baptist church. They marched the children to the white side of town. By the end of that day, over a thousand children were jailed. The next day, even more children marched from the church towards City Hall. But the jails were already filled. So Bull Connor broke out the fire hoses and K-9 units. The nation was flooded with horrifying pictures of the protest. One of the most shocking images was of a police dog lunging at a boy. Another infamous photograph was of three teenagers getting shot by high-powered fire hoses. President John F. Kennedy condemned the brutality. Because of these pictures, the nation unified behind Dr. King. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed the next year. Walker and King expressed shock and horror when Connor released dogs and fire hoses on the kids. But that was their goal all along, Gladwell says. When Walker heard Connor was bringing out his dogs, he was reported as jumping with joy. He shouted to his stunned team, We've got a movement. We've got a movement. We have some police brutality. Everybody from Robert F. Kennedy to Malcolm X condemned the involvement of children. But civil rights peer Fred Shuttlesworth explained it best. We gotta use what we got. Walker took down the White South's Goliath by using an unconventional yet powerful weapon and striking the giant in its only weak spot. We'll take a quick break. 
When we return, we'll continue our exploration into Malcolm Gladwell's David and Goliath. We'll define the mathematical representation of David and Goliath, called the inverted U-curve. Then we'll explore how disadvantages are really advantages. Enjoying this episode of Book Insights? If so, keep listening and learning. There's a collection of over 100 titles you can read or listen to now at memodapp.com insights. That's M-E-M-O-D-A-P-P dot com slash insights. We're continuing our look into Malcolm Gladwell's most divisive best-selling book. It's called David and Goliath. Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. We'll examine the David and Goliath myth as a mathematical equation, which Gladwell calls the inverted U-curve. Then we'll ask if you'd ever wish dyslexia on your children. Let's consider the difficulty of raising a child and how that process might be affected by how much money a parent has. When a parent has very little money, this means they might have to work several low-income jobs, spending lots of time away from the family. It can be a struggle to provide for the child, so education, food, and safety are at risk. When you scale up the parent's income, parenting becomes generally easier. You can now feed the child, clothe them, and enroll them in after-school programs. You can, on the whole, better provide for them. With this logic, you'd figure that if you kept scaling up the parent's income, parenting becomes easier and easier, right? If you're a millionaire, parenting must be a cakewalk. But according to Gladwell, the opposite is true. Hollywood producer Brian Grazer is responsible for some of the biggest blockbusters in the last 40 years. These include Apollo 13, A Beautiful Mind, and Splash. Gladwell asks Grazer, What's it like to raise a child when you can provide anything for them? Grazer's answer, incredibly challenging. Grazer was not born into wealth. His father was a product of the Great Depression, and he chided his children for wasting anything. Grazer fought and struggled for everything he earned since the age of 10. But Grazer's movies have made over $13 billion. If his son wants a race car when he turns 16, Grazer can provide that race car. But all that does is teach the kid, ask and you shall receive. The risk is that child grows up lacking ambition and self-worth. You don't need to be a millionaire to face this challenge. Once you start making six-figure salaries, the impulse to overly provide starts to build. Imagine this struggle as a graph. The x-axis is money increasing, going right. The y-axis is ease of parenting. If you start at a low income, the ease of parenting starts low, meaning lack of parental presence and difficulty to provide. As you increase the income, ease of parenting swoops up. Continue to increase the income and the curve levels off. When you can provide anything for the child, ease of parenting plummets and the curve drops. This is what Gladwell calls the inverted U-curve. If the tale of David and Goliath is the mythological depiction of Gladwell's thesis, the inverted U-curve is the thesis in mathematics. Here's Gladwell talking with Knowledge at Wharton. 
What makes me better than you at the beginning is that I have more resources, that if I keep spending resources, I'll always be ahead of you. It's just not true. You know, General Motors is not a better company. I'm more nimble, innovative company. Microsoft is not more innovative today than it was when it was a fraction of its size. On the inverted U-curve, the millionaire parent is Goliath. You expect this powerful and colossal figure to dominate, but its own size and power work against it. Gladwell puts it this way. If your family earns an extra $25,000 more than your neighbor, you can drive a nicer car and go out to eat more often, but it doesn't make you happier or better equipped to do the thousands of small and large things that make for being a good parent. What is the point at which more money doesn't make you a better parent? Gladwell says that the peak of the inverted U-curve is about $75,000 in 2011 income or 85,000 today. If you start earning above that, don't assume your parenting can be contracted out. In fact, you need to be careful that the extra money doesn't warp your kids' sense of the world, that they fail to understand the value of money and the meaning of work. Like Goliath, they may seem to have all the advantages, but perhaps their poorer contemporaries, who need to strive to reach a life of greater financial safety, are the winning Davids here. Millionaire parent and Hollywood producer Brian Grazer is also dyslexic. Dyslexia is often misunderstood as seeing words backwards. It's actually the brain missing an association between symbols and their meaning. Dyslexic children tend to grow up frustrated with schooling since educators lack the resources and understanding to provide for the children. To combat this disadvantage, Grazer became an outstanding arguer. Before his report cards came out, he went to each of his teachers and wore them down until they raised his grade by a letter point. David Boys is another dyslexic. At a young age, he discovered it was impossible to read stories off a page, so he memorized the ones his mother read to him. In school, he spent a painful amount of time reading through his textbooks, but his true gift was in receiving information, storing it, and recalling it. Boys became one of America's most celebrated attorneys, for example, successfully leading the prosecution of Microsoft in United States versus Microsoft Corp. Although his more recent endeavors bear more scrutiny, representing the fraudulent health tech startup Theranos and directing a private intelligence company to spy on Harvey Weinstein's sexual abuse victims, many accredit Boys for having a gift But, according to Gladwell, his career success might be attributed to something he supposedly lacks. Gladwell returns repeatedly to the question, would you wish dyslexia upon your children? Growing up with dyslexia can be frustrating, which can drag down a child's confidence and work ethic. But look at how this turned out for Grazer and boys. Gladwell describes how this works. Dyslexia, in the best of cases, forces you to develop skills that might otherwise have lain dormant. Boys developed a refined ability to memorize and recount from a young age. Is it any wonder he became one of the most gifted attorneys of his generation? And Grazer's education was learning to develop his oratory skills. If a kid can argue with his teachers for better grades, is it any wonder he grew up into one of the most successful producers in Hollywood? Would anyone not want their child to possess a desirable disadvantage like this? There is no easy answer. 
It's like throwing your child into the deepest end of the pool to make them a swimmer. This leads us on to Gladwell's big fish in a little pond and little fish in a big pond concepts. In one example, Gladwell describes the big pond as an Ivy League university and the little pond as something more like a state college. If you were to give your child advice, what would you say if your kid is accepted into an Ivy League school and wants to attend? You tell them, go be a Harvard student, right? Wishing your child to go to a state school seems like the lesser choice. It's like wishing dyslexia upon your child. Why set them up with a clear disadvantage? Caroline Sachs wanted to be a marine biologist all her life. Choosing between Ivy League and state, she went Ivy League. For the first time in her life, she was surrounded by students racing ahead of her in subjects that she struggled to grasp. Her frustrations grew until she decided not to pursue her life's passion. She tells Gladwell that if she had gone to a state college, I'd still be into science. Choosing Ivy League is the figurative Goliath in this contest. Goliath is big, powerful, and obvious. This is the far end of the inverted U-curve. But you aren't supposed to overshoot the curve. You want to land on the peak. If Sachs chooses the state school, she may carry the same confidence and enthusiasm from her childhood. By graduating in the top percentile in the school, she's a big fish in a little pond. She is exceptional. Recruiters naturally love an Ivy League candidate, but they prefer gauging the performance, attitude, and capability of the individual performer. When you're a low-percentile Harvard graduate, you're a little fish in a big pond. You're not exceptional, you're standard, even below standard. It comes down to, would you rather have a top degree from a state school or a mediocre one from Harvard? It's not a straightforward question. Don't assume that a famous name will make your career. The opposite may be true. We'll take one final break before concluding our look into Gladwell's David and Goliath. We'll discover how you can be emboldened by what Gladwell calls near misses. Then we'll examine some of the book's criticisms and how this is Gladwell's most divisive book. Enjoying this episode of Book Insights? If so, keep listening and learning. There's a collection of over 100 titles you can read or listen to now at memodeapp.com insights. That's M-E-M-O-D-A-P-P dot com slash insights. We're concluding our look into Malcolm Gladwell's divisive 2013 bestseller, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. Here's Gladwell speaking with NPR about what subject excites him. You're never more alive than when things get turned upside down. I love the feeling, actually, of getting my apple cart overturned. We'll first define what remote misses are and how they embolden underdogs. Then we'll review some of the criticisms of this and Gladwell's other books. Civil rights activist and pastor Fred Shuttlesworth was fearless. After the Ku Klux Klan bombed his home, Shuttlesworth refused to leave town. 
He was in Birmingham with Wyatt Walker, and the two stood tall against not only the segregationist Bull Connor and his police force, but the overwhelming presence of the KKK. Bombings were so prevalent in the Alabama city, it was nicknamed Bombingham. This is classic David behavior. When taking on a giant, the little guy keeps getting back up. It's like Steve Rogers in Captain America, the first Avenger. Long before he gets his superhero abs, Rogers keeps bouncing back when confronted with a bully. He tells the much larger man, I can do this all day. To grasp the psychology of this, let's examine the mindset of Londoners during the Blitz in World War II. Nazi Germany bombed London for eight months. They meant to cripple England's morale and will to fight. The British government expected people to never leave the shelters. Industries would fall. But just the opposite happened. Citizens went about their day as the bombs fell, living proof of the iconic 1939 poster, Keep Calm and Carry On. The fearlessness of the British left the Nazi invasion at a standstill. There are three types of airstrike impact, according to Canadian psychiatrist J.T. McCurdy, who published The Structure of Morale in 1943. First, you have direct hits. These strike people directly, most likely killing them. Then there's near misses. These might wound you, damage your home, or hurt someone close to you. Finally, there's remote misses. Remote misses hit nowhere near you. They'll hit a block or two away at best, but you're not directly affected by the blast. Most Londoners during the Blitz were hit with remote misses. The direct hit casualties never felt lasting fear they're dead. The near misses and the remote misses only grew more determined, more fearless. The same thing happened with Shuttlesworth when the KKK bombed his home. Shuttlesworth walked out of his half-demolished house with only scratches. Police suggested Shuttlesworth should leave before something worse happened. Shuttlesworth refused, saying that, if the Lord saved me from this, I'm here for the duration. The fight is just beginning. Shuttlesworth was familiar with remote and near misses. He personally drove his daughter to a segregated school through an aggressive mob. The moment he stepped out of the car, the violent segregationists attacked him. He crawled back to the car with cuts and bruises. That same evening, he told his congregation he had nothing but forgiveness for his attackers. Later, an angry mob tried to block the way when Shuttlesworth drove Jim Farmer, another activist, to meet with Dr. King. The mob threw Coke bottles and tear gas at their car. Shuttlesworth responded by stepping out and fearlessly guiding a terrified farmer through the mob on foot. The life of an activist is filled with remote and near misses. A simpler way to put this is the common phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Remote misses can make you feel giddy, protected, and invincible. Londoners described a feeling of exhilaration after their first remote miss. Shuttlesworth experienced three. For the rest of his life, he responded to violence and threats with compassion and stoicism. Gladwell compares this with losing a parent or suffering a rough childhood. Emil J. Freireich was the son of immigrants, raised by a single mother who worked a miserable job just to afford a roof over their heads. Freireich grew up on the streets of early 20th century Manhattan. His father died under mysterious circumstances, but it was assumed to be suicide. Freireich was uncultured, impatient, and almost aggressively persistent. 
But Freireich worked hard to get into school, becoming a doctor of oncology. He worked the soul-crushing child leukemia ward on the 12th floor of his hospital. Back then, child leukemia was a disease with a nearly total fatality rate. Freireich refused to give up on the children to an unreasonable degree, making promises he could never keep, and he put the children through inhumane drug treatments. Freireich once said, I had 25 kids dying. I had nothing to offer them. My feeling was, I'll try it. Why not? They're going to die anyway. He hooked children up to comically-sized blood bags, giving an unheard-of blood transfusion just to stop the bleeding. To effectively kill all cancer cells, he submitted children as young as four through year-long chemotherapy. His hospital fought him every step of the way. They refused to okay the elaborate drug cocktail since the treatment would push children savagely and repeatedly to the brink of death once a month for an entire year. But Freireich's determination was not shaken. His own upbringing was tough, challenging, and gritty, with lots of near or remote misses. His superiors accused him of torturing children, but his research and experiments produced an effective treatment. The cure rate for childhood leukemia is around 90% today, and in 2019, Freireich was awarded the American Association for Cancer Research's Lifetime Achievement Award. Before we conclude, let's revisit what we've covered. Gladwell gives us a revisionist take on the biblical tale of David and Goliath. David was no simple shepherd boy with only the grace of the Lord on his side, but a dexterous artillery warrior. Goliath's build and power were likely the symptoms of a benign tumor that's common amongst people of immense size, which would render him vision-impaired. The battle was always in David's favor. We learned a mathematical equation to represent this power dynamic. On a graph, an inverted U-curve represents how, once an equation gains too much of a particular integer, the effectiveness of the measured subject drops sharply. When you overshoot the curve, you're Goliath, flailing despite all your power. The peak of the curve is where you find yourself a David, just the right position. We asked ourselves, would you wish dyslexia on your children? We learned how apparent disadvantages, like dyslexia, can also be great opportunities. We also compared how advantages and disadvantages can be misunderstood through the big pond, small pond example. Instead of being a little fish in a big pond, you should aim to be a big fish in a small pond. Finally, we learned how some of history's greatest Davids gained strength from near or remote misses. Using research on the London Blitz, a near miss is a close but non-fatal bomb strike, whereas a remote miss is a distant miss that doesn't harm the subject. A remote miss, in particular, has the opposite effect of a direct hit. It makes the subject feel invincible. The Late Show host Stephen Colbert once called Gladwell's prose perfect water cooler conversation. For years, Gladwell was regularly releasing nonfiction books, which were all hotly received by audiences and critics. That changed with David and Goliath. Readers liked the upbeat message, but there were plenty of negative reviews. For some critics, the book was the tipping point for what many refer to as Gladwell's convenient logic. 
In a review in The New Republic, published with the headline, Gladwell is America's Best-Paid Fairy Tale Writer, the English philosopher John Gray noted the now-common criticism that Gladwell cherry-picks results to complex academic research to support simple-minded stories. In fact, you can find this criticism going back to Gladwell's first book, The Tipping Point. Arguably, some of Gladwell's theories aren't just a little obvious or incoherent, but ignorant and naive. To claim that a childhood full of near and remote misses, such as Freireich's, somehow benefits that child by instilling a sense of grit is highly contentious, to say the least. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, author of the international bestseller The Body Keeps the Score, would certainly contest the idea that growing up suffering traumas such as extreme poverty, an unstable home, suicide, and absent parents does anyone any good. What Gladwell does best is, in his own words, to get people to look at the world a little differently. We think the world goes one way, but really it's another. That's the common theme for all of his books, from Blink's pros and cons of a person's ability to effectively make split-second judgments to Outlier's suggestion that geniuses aren't born geniuses, but just put in 10,000 hours of effort until they become great. More than anything, Gladwell is a storyteller, perhaps one of the best nonfiction storytellers of our generation. He remains at the peak of pop science and pop culture, giving lectures to sold-out crowds. He's greeted with the adoration a rock star might expect, not a journalist. Gladwell took a break from publishing books after David and Goliath. Using this time to explore other media, such as podcasting, he returned invigorated with his first book in six years, 2019's Talking to Strangers. We're in a Gladwellian utopia at this point, assaulted on all fronts by revisionist takes on history and popular culture. Thanks to the journalist-turned-publishing sensation, we're already looking at the world a little differently. Thank you for listening to Book Insights. Check out the rest of our content at memodap.com. Please keep in mind that the information provided in or through our Book Insights episodes is for educational and informational purposes only. It's not intended to be a substitute for advice given by qualified professionals and should not be relied upon to disregard or delay seeking professional advice. Thank you.